Well, today we are wrapping up a series called I Believe in God, But. And we've been dealing with the big question of how can a God who is loving and compassionate and kind allow evil to exist? How can he not just put an end to it? And so I want to encourage you, if you have not been here for this series, to go to shilohroad.com or to check out the Shiloh Road um, Connect app, and you can listen to those messages there and kind of catch up, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning going back through um, the, the process of how we've gotten to now, because today I want to talk about how do we move from the world that is to the world that is supposed to be. Um, and it's a great, great question. It's a question that Easter, I think, answers and it's an answer that we find on the other side of the tomb. Um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, after they have discovered the tomb is empty, it says this, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only the one, only one visiting Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priest and all the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem, redeem Israel. We, we had hoped this is the one that we were waiting for. We had hoped he was the one that was going to save us. We had hoped this was him. But he was dead. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, How foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And one of the things we see in this, this verse, there's an order to the way things were supposed to work. That's what the and them means. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? There was an order to the way things had to work. 
And the grave is an awful reminder of what was and what now is. It's the new reality that you and I are left with. The way the world was is not the way that it is now. And the tomb, the grave, sealed the fate of Friday, and it made the visibility of Sunday very difficult to see. In college, as I went off, my parents bought me a new car. Well, it wasn't new. I graduated in 1998, and they bought me a 1991 Buick Century. Let me tell you, the girls loved it. And I went to Harding all four, five years, however long it took me to get through there. And my junior year, they had just redone the parking lot with new asphalt. And so it's August, and Arkansas is a bit like Texas, really hot and really humid. And I pulled up, and there wasn't parking spot or parking stops in place, and so I pulled up right to the edge. And as I was leaving my car there overnight the asphalt, the new asphalt under my tires broke away. And it wedged my front tires down over this edge. And with where I was parked, I could not pull forward and get out. And what I found when I tried to reverse is the power of the 91 Buick Century wasn't sufficient to get over a hump about that big with reverse. And so I sat there and I hit the gas and I, as hard as I could, and nothing happened. And I hit it again, and still nothing happened. I figured I could wear the asphalt down. And then I decided, well, I'm going to pull forward a little bit, because I didn't have much room, and floor it and try to get back over, and nothing happened. And finally, I went and got some football players that were in the dorm across from me, and we all kind of tried to pick my car up and push it backwards, and that didn't work. And so we had to have professional help come and get my car unstuck. And so the next week we had gone, some friends and I, to eat at a restaurant in Searcy. And we pulled into a, a place right beside the, um, the restaurant. We get out, we go inside and we eat. We come out, all four of us in the car. We get into the car, put my car in reverse and hit the gas. And nothing happens. Somehow, in my trying to reverse, I had burned out the reverse in my transmission. And it did not work. And so I call my dad, who is always good about helping take care of things, and said, Dad, I don't have reverse in my car. He says, if you need it fixed, you're going to have to pay for it because I can't afford it. So I made the decision to go without reverse for a while. And I made really good friends with gravity. Because what I would do, I would either pull all the way forward in a parking place, or I would make sure I was parked on an incline so that I could put my car in neutral and just coast back. And so I finally got up the courage one day to ask out this girl that I'd been wanting to ask out, and we're going on this date. And I didn't want to tell her, hey, um, I burned out the reverse of my car. So we go to this restaurant, and we get out, and I had pulled in to a beautiful spot that was an incline that I could easily roll backwards out of. And we get done with dinner, and we come out, and I put my car in reverse, and nothing happens. 
doesn't roll. And I start noticing the parking lot around me. And even though the parking space I am, am in looks like it's sloped like this, the rest of the parking lot is sloped like this. And I can't move. And so, I open up my door. I stick my foot out the side and start pushing my car backwards out of the spot. And my date goes, would you like me to help? (laughs) Uh, So the best first date in history happened. And what, what was so funny is, like, it was gravity had to help me out. Like, there, there was this natural flow. Things had to go a certain way for my, my car to go backwards. And, like, one of the things you discover in life is that, that following Jesus, there are so many things that he calls us to do that go against the flow, the natural flow and the movement of the world. That, that we want to go the way we think we need to go. We want... To, to be people who have it all figured out. We want to just be able to put it in reverse and just go back. And one of the things Jesus does is says, no, I want, I want you to go against the flow of everything else. Like, I know the parking lot's sloped this way, but I want you to go this way. I, I want you to go against the grain. And the thing the story in Luke um, brings up for us is the question of, well, is resurrection even possible? Because these disciples, they come to the tomb and they start asking this question, well, the tomb is empty. Is this even possible? And you have this group of people, you have these disciples, Cleopas and his friend, they're walking away from Jerusalem. They start hearing rumors that this Jesus who died said he would rise again is not in the tomb. And the tomb is empty. And yet they're going the opposite direction. And they encounter Jesus. And they don't realize it's him. They don't realize that it's Jesus who's right here. And the question of, is resurrection possible? If the answer is yes, that changes everything. Because if resurrection is a possibility, then the world is now ordered by an entirely new set of principles. The way things were when the tomb was sealed is now different from the way they are now. The entire universe functions in a different manner. And that question is such a big question. Is resurrection possible? But I think you see it all around you. You see resurrection. um, Springtime in East Texas is gorgeous. And you have flowers at your house that were dead a month ago. And today they are blooming and gorgeous and beautiful. And if you don't have a green thumb, they probably at least resurrected your allergies. 
We see resurrection all around us. We see it in the stories that we tell. You never meet someone who starts telling the story about their life and it's like, well, everything in my life has been really good. I've never had any problems. I've never had any bills that I couldn't pay. Everything was perfect. I've never really lost anyone. I've never had any issues. Everything is good. And if you have met that person, you probably don't like them. Because the stories we tell, if I were to ask you about your life, you would tell me about some difficulties that you've encountered. A loss of someone, a diagnosis, a divorce. And the stories we tell reflect the idea that resurrection is possible because they move us from the bad to the good. And then in relationships. One of the cool things about my job is getting to see different relationships on different levels that maybe you never get to see. Um, this past year, I went to a hospital, and someone who was really struggling and, and fighting for their life, I got to hear a story of a friend and a relationship that was reconciled in that moment, that had been separated and, and were struggling to, to connect for the last five or six years. And then all of a sudden, this man is fighting for his life, and the friend says, wow. I can't let this be the way it ends. And the relationship is healed. We see death and resurrection all around us. Last week we talked about this idea that resurrection is a process. That on the cross what you see is Jesus with his arms outstretched and a crowd who put him there saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And then following his forgiveness of these people, he encounters death. And on the other side of death is resurrection. There is an empty tomb on the other side, and you have forgiveness, and you have death, and you have resurrection. And there's a pattern that begins to happen in our world. Because what we find is that forgiveness and resurrection are tied together. You cannot have one without the other. And we want to think that it's just about receiving forgiveness. That, that resurrection and forgiveness are tied together because if you're resurrected, that means you're not held down by death. And the, the point of death, it came from sin. And so if you're set free from sin and death, then you have to be resurrected. You cannot be held down. And so we think, well, this is just about receiving forgiveness. We confess, we're baptized, we're washed clean, and then we receive forgiveness. But what I think you find in the resurrection story, that it's not just receiving forgiveness that leads to new life. It's also in giving it. It's also when we offer forgiveness that we find new life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And he says in this prayer, Father, forgive us 
in the same way that we have forgiven. You remember this part of the prayer? Which is a, a pretty scary prayer to pray if you think about it. Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I don't know about you. I don't want to ask Jesus to forgive me as I forgive. Because there are times that I'm not very good at forgiving. There are times that I don't want to forgive. There are times that I want to hold on to a grudge. There are times that I want to be right, and I don't want to give up my place. A little bit later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is confronted with this question from Peter, how many times do I have to forgive someone? Seven times? He says, not seven, but 70 times seven. And then he goes on and he says, the kingdom of God is like. It's like this, this servant who had this insurmountable debt. And, and in context of today, think about a debt of like $3 million. And the servant is going to be sold with everything he has, family, possessions, to pay the debt back. And he comes to the, the master and he says, will you, just, will you forgive me? If you'll forgive me, I'll pay it back. Which is absurd. Think, think about a servant today just saying, yeah, just a second. Hold on. I'm going to go get the money. Yes, can I have $3 million? The story is absurd. There is no possibility that he's going to be able to get what he needs to pay back the master. And yet the master forgives the debt. And then the servant goes off and he encounters another who owes him some money. Just a small amount. And yet he won't forgive the debt of the other servant. And then Jesus says, it's going to be the same way. If you can't forgive, I'm not going to forgive. That There's another way of, of looking at it. If you're going to live in death, I'm not going to let you be resurrected. If you're going to live in death, if you're going to make that choice, that decision to live in death, then resurrection is not a possibility for you. Because you are making a choice, a decision, to hold on to the past when your past has been set free. I was thinking back over the last several years. One of the things that came to my mind was this past week, Thursday, dropping off my kids at Andy Woods Elementary. If you do not believe in demon possession, show up Monday morning at 745 at the four-way stop outside of Andy Woods, and you will. And I pulled up to this stop, this four-way stop, and this person on the other side, and there's one car in front of me, the car on this side goes, the person on this side goes, the next person on this side goes, and it's my turn. And this person coming from this other direction rolls up to the stop sign and rolls right through, taking my turn. And then, assuming that they waited a turn like they were supposed to, the person on the other side of me went ahead and went. And I missed two turns. 
And I, it, what, what's funny is I found myself so aggravated and angry, just holding the steering wheel and gripping it and grinting my teeth and thinking, that was my place. Like demon possession in the car, my car. And, and I, you're handed these little moments in life that you're forced to, to deal with. And they don't seem like a big deal. You just blow them off and they go away. It's, it's really nothing. A, a few weeks ago, I started growing a beard. And I, I like to keep it really short. But I had someone at church come up to me. A, a really, and I love her to death. I don't, I, and I, I say that. I don't even remember who it was. Um, but she comes up. But I do love her. No, it, it's Bert. Um, she comes up to me and says, oh, you're growing a beard. I don't like it. And, it, you know, it's this moment of like, well, I, I guess you're free to talk about my hair, so. But we're handed these different moments that you have to deal with. And what's really easy is just to start kind of putting them away. A couple years back, a friend of mine, and we're really good friends now, her name is Lisa Joe. She was our secretary at West Hill, but before she was our secretary, I had both of her sons in my youth group. And I'd been there, it, it, it was central at the time before we merged. I'd been there for about three months, and she came into my office and we were talking, and I just said, so how do you think the youth ministry's going? great question to ask, by the way, for a 23-year-old kid out of college. Um, and she looks at me, and she goes, you know, I don't even think you like kids. And you start to have those conversations with yourself of what you would have liked to have said in the situation. Now, here's, here's the deal. Over time, it starts to add up. And then, inevitably, you're going to be handed some things that are even bigger. The divorce, the loss of job, the friend that betrayed you. And if you haven't learned to deal with the small stuff, it's going to cloud the vision of the big stuff. See, the tomb was the awful reminder of the reality that was and now is. This world that you are left to deal with and hurt forces you to answer a really important question. What will you do with what you've been handed? What will you do with what you have been handed?
Because there's one thing that I am certain of, is that evil in our world exists. And every single one of us will come face to face with it and be forced to answer the question, how will I handle what I have been handed? And our tendency is to hold on to it and keep it inside. And I think what Jesus wants you to see in Matthew 18 is to hold on to it and to keep it inside is to refuse to come out of the tomb. It's to remain in death. See, forgiveness is a process of death and resurrection. Forgiveness is allowing all that you hold on to to die. And then on the other side of death, be able to experience new life. Forgiveness is the process of death and resurrection. I have a friend who is a counselor to me, a mentor, a coach. And, and quite, frank, quite, quite often, I will bring up these little things and I'll say to him, I feel like I should be bigger than this so that this doesn't bother me. And he'll always look back at me and he'll say, but it is. And you have to learn how to deal with it. You have to learn how to handle what's been handed because you cannot affect what is handed to you. For the most part, you don't have control of it. It's just handed to you, and you're forced to deal with it. And here's my assumption about each of you. Is that someone, at some point, has said something or done something to you that you have struggled to let go of. That you still hold on to that you don't want to let go of because that person owes you. They owe you a life. They owe you a job. If they hadn't done it, your child would still be here. If they hadn't done this, your marriage would still be intact. If they hadn't done this, your kid would be okay. And over time, we're left with these pieces of hurt that we've been handed. And we just tuck them away in hopes that all will be okay. Let me tell you real quick what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying it didn't happen. It's not pretending that, well, everything it is fine. It just didn't happen. It's not pretending that it did not hurt. It's not saying that everything is okay and they should not be punished. It's not saying that all is okay. What forgiveness says is I understand what it is you did to me, what you took from me, what you owe me, and I will no longer hold it over your head. See, when Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, here's how you pray. I want you to forgive your debtors 
or, or forgive your debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I want you to learn to forgive like I forgive so that you are free to pray that prayer. So that you have been resurrected and find new life on the other side and you can say, God, I want you to forgive me like I forgive because in this moment I am becoming more like you. I am being transformed by the things that once held me down. I have been set free. And now I'm finding new life on the other side. See, one of the things that we confess as we go into the water is that Jesus is Lord of our life. And that we're giving over control of everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we want to hold on to. To become like him. And one of the most pure and beautiful ways we do that is through forgiving as he forgives. Through becoming like him. And in that we find resurrection on the other side of death. I'm sure most of you know of the Charles Manson killings. There's a story of a writer in California who went out to California. Or her name was Susan. She lived in New Mexico. And after Manson was put into prison, she began this pen pal relationship with him. As often happens with these big name killers, people will start writing. And so Susan starts writing um, Charles Tex Watson. And Tex begins to tell his story of how he grew up in Texas, started using drugs, became involved with Manson, and then became one of those drug-induced zombie killers. And he goes to prison on death row. And on death row, he has this incredible experience where he meets Jesus and becomes a Christian, and then becomes a prison chaplain. And so he's been writing this pen pal relationship, telling his story for over two years. And finally, one moment, Susan writes a letter back to Tex and says, My family and I are coming to California on vacation, and I would love to visit with you. And so the day comes, and Susan goes to the prison, and she sits down across from Tex. And she says, Tex, I've seen your story written down but I would love to hear you tell it. And he goes through the entire story, all the way up through becoming a prison chaplain, tears streaming down his face for 45 minutes just telling about his life and about what's happened. And then the five-minute whistle blows that lets visitors know it's time to wrap up your conversations. And Susan looks across the table at Tex and says, Tex, I wasn't going to tell you this when I came here today. But my parents were Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. And you killed my mom and dad. And I want you to know that I forgive you. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free. And then realizing it was you that was held prisoner the whole time. Forgiveness is not easy. It's not simple. It's not free. It costs everything. 
It cost God his son. It cost Jesus his life. And one of the things that we do as we forgive is we take on this incredible cost of letting go of dying to what we hold on to. But what we are promised on the other side is resurrection. What we're promised is that we will be set free. It's not just in receiving forgiveness that we're resurrected. That's what the water represents. But it's also in life that begins on the other side of resurrection. And forgiving. And letting go of what we hold on to. So my question for you this morning is what is it that you're still holding on to? What is it from your past that still keeps coming to the surface that you've never dealt with? What is it that needs to be let go of and put to death so that you can experience new life? Because the freedom that Jesus offers you is not just found in receiving forgiveness. It's also in giving forgiveness. What is it that you're holding on to and have never let go of? Father, today, I know there are so many in this room with different thoughts and things that come to the mind of what we're holding on to that we refuse to let go of. And Father, some of it's because of pride, some of it's because of stubbornness, some of it's because of pain and hurt that runs deep, deep, deep in our bones. But one of the things that you promise us is that you have come to give us life. And our life that we want to experience is found in forgiveness. It's the moment when you offer forgiveness for all those things that we hold against you, the, the world that we've created that's out of kilter, that's out of sorts, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And you forgive us of that. You set us free from that in hopes that we will create your new world here in the midst of this one that's falling apart and broken. Father, we pray that you would resurrect us. Not just one time through the water, Father, but every single day that we wake up. Resurrect us. Bring us to new life. Father, it is an endless cycle. And we want to be a part of it. Father, bring us into those healing waters from Ezekiel. Bring us into those waters that flow, that give life, that are abundant and free. And Father, allow us to experience life letting go of all that we hold on to. Simply trusting in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. If we could help you this morning, um, if you've never received forgiveness, come to the water and be made new. But if there's something that you've been holding on to that you need to let go of. We're going to have ministry staff, shepherds around the back of the auditorium. 
We would love to pray for you and help you in your journey in any way that we could. So come while we stand and we sing.